1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are ya? It's time for a Tech Stuff Classic episode. We are actually going to continue the conversation that was begun in last week's Classic episode. Last week was the Manhattan Project Part 1. This week, it's Tech Stuff Takes Manhattan Project. Ben Bolin joins us yet again to chat about the Manhattan Project, and I hope you enjoy.
2: So I'd like to say to all listeners, uh, if you have not heard Part 1, of this pride, of of this podcast or this series, then I implore you. Maybe yeah. maybe that's too strong a word. I don't know. No, I think implore is a good word because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise there are going to be a lot of play. It's going to be like watching uh, season four of Lost. Yeah. Without having seen anything, it'll else. be
0: like it'll be like if you. If you've heard, hey, that Game of Thrones show is supposed to be really good, <laughs> right, yeah. let me just watch this one episode. You won't <laughs> know who any of the people are or why they're doing what mm-hmm, they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here's a quick previously on Tech Stuff. Uh, we ended up covering the physics that led up to the discovery of fission. We also covered the political landscape, the fact that World War II was, uh, well, first it was... Ah, uh, building you know the world was building up to World War II and then World War II breaks out, and how that ended up creating uh, a, a fast track in the United States for research into uh, fission, uh, specifically in the weaponization of fission, mm-hmm. using using atomic uh, science to create a weapon, because there was the very real threat that the Nazis were working on their own. Program for such a thing. And even before the United States was pulled into the war, uh, there was this, this need. Uh, Einstein himself had expressed concern. And, uh, we also talked about sort of the, the players that were all doing various lines of research into the separate, separation of, um, of ions of uranium. Because as it turns out, U-235 is really what you want if you're trying to achieve nuclear fission, especially a sustainable chain reaction. Uh, but U-238 is overwhelmingly the more abundant version of uranium that's found in nature. And separating the two is not an easy task. So we have multiple areas of research looking into ways to do that. And also a need to find a way to weaponize it. We concluded part one. This is just to set us up for part two. <laughs> yeah, we concluded part one talking about how uh, there was uh, the Army Corps of Engineers had become involved, and there was a fellow named James C. Marshall who was initially in charge. James C. Marshall's headquarters were uh, were located in Manhattan, mm-hmm. and uh, specifically was the Manhattan Energy District was the the code name for it. And the secret project, super secret project, to develop atomic weapons, became known as the Manhattan Project. Even after those headquarters were no longer in Manhattan.
2: Yeah, you know, if you find a name that works, you stick you stick with the name. And it's one of those it's one of those uh, common misconceptions because as as we've mentioned on the previous episode, this uh, Manhattan Project did not occur, not only did it not occur in just Manhattan or just New Mexico, but yeah. it, it, it occurred uh, in areas across the uh, across the U.S. There's some really cool stuff yeah. that's going to happen there, uh, very There soon. are
0: towns that only exist because of the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would not have otherwise grown up where they are. And um, to really get into this, uh, at this stage, the very early days of the Manhattan Project uh, as an official thing, there were some tensions that were already building up between the scientific community, the the various research centers that sure. were looking into this, and the army that was more or less kind of facilitating it, you know, sort of in charge, but also mainly their purpose was to make sure that the scientists were going to have the facilities and resources that they would need in order to do what they needed to do.
2: And uh, also the ones to crack the whip on the timeline.
0: Yeah. Well, and as it turns out, the Army moves at a certain pace that the scientists didn't find particularly helpful. The, you know, the, the essentially bureaucracy got in the way. Things yeah. Things slowed down, and the scientists were not entirely happy with the way Marshall was running things. So in September 1942... The army decides to replace Marshall with Colonel Leslie R. Groves, who after, you know, six days after becoming the head of the Manhattan Project was promoted to Brigadier General. So calling him Colonel Groves is misleading since mm-hmm. he was almost immediately a Brigadier General. Uh, Groves was instrumental in bringing the Pentagon or building the Pentagon. He was, he was one of the people very much in charge of that project. And he also had a background as an engineer. So he understood the needs of building facilities, you know, what, what actually is required to do this. And he knew how to wor- work on this in a very uh, aggressive timeline, mm-hmm. I guess is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. So Groves moves in. And then there were all these different uh, sites that the scientists had identified as being potentially ideal for the Manhattan Project. And Marshall had been very slowly investigating them. Groves, on the other hand, said, all right, let's do it.
2: Let's and, get it. Let's get them.
0: Let's get her done. <laughs> uh, so Groves relocated the, at the headquarters from Manhattan to D.C., but of course, it was already known as the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. It was not going to be called the D.C. Project. It got stuck that way. And he made Colonel Kenneth D. Nichols, uh, who was James C. Marshall's deputy, into his chief aide on the project. Marshall himself became a district engineer within the program and that's where he really excelled within the Manhattan Project because mm-hmm. his, his talents were considerable. It's just they were better suited for a different, uh, a different job than right. overseeing the entire project.
2: <laughs> right. I see what you're saying.
0: Yeah. Because as it turns out, you know, you want someone who's aggressive so that things can get started, but you also want people who observe the need for caution mm-hmm. when you're handling nuclear materials.
2: Right, yeah, it's important to know Marshall was not fired.
0: No, he was just simply reassigned. It was mm-hmm. one of those things where the need for this project was clear, mm-hmm. but how to organize it was something that was kind of up in the air for a little bit.
2: It the first time anybody was doing something like this, yeah. as far as we knew exactly. <laughs>
0: exactly yeah well you know the ancient egyptians know. uh <laughs> so at the same time that this is going on vannevar bush if you don't know who that is you need to listen to our last episode we told you yeah i think it's, it's just going to get more difficult from this point forward uh, set up the military policy committee which would be made up of a representative from the army a representative from the navy and one from the office of scientific research and development uh, if you recall Bush himself was the head of the Office of Scientific Research right. and Development, but um, was constantly moving up because his considerable talents in also getting things done. Bush, I think, was probably one of the best at figuring out who would be ideal to run certain parts of this project. Like, he mm-hmm. he was really good at matching the people with the parts of the project that needed them. Um, very... Uh, visionary kind of guy.
2: Also very, very effective at being a liaison between the big, the big machine and then these brilliant scientists. uh... Yeah, he seemed to know how to handle people no matter what background they came from. Mm -hmm.
0: And those folks are invaluable. I mean, you can find people who are really smart and really talented, but if they don't know how to how to interact with other people, they don't Mm -hmm. go very far. Bush, however, was not one of those guys. We'll be back with more of this classic episode of Tech Stuff after this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected.
3: Zumo Play.
0: Groves himself made it clear that the pursuit of multiple lines of research for that isotope separation that was something that could not go on forever. That really, what needed to happen was the the project needed to settle on the you know one one line or maybe two lines of inquiry right. to really concentrate their efforts. Even if it turned out those were not the most uh efficient, it would mean that they could at least concentrate their their
2: you know their workforce right because at the time these scientists have their pet projects, yeah, which uh some of them have even if they some of them already kind of indicate that this will be enormously expensive unless right. there's some breakthrough
0: and and you had groups that had very different views on the efficacy yes. of the various methodologies. For example, the British loved the idea of gaseous diffusion for Ooh. isotope separation. Meanwhile, you have Oppenheimer, who was demonstrating that the electromagnetic version of isotope separation could be incredibly effective. It's just that he he was working on a smaller scale, right? Right. But the scale that he was working on, if he could scale up, he was pretty sure this methodology would be incredibly fruitful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was arguing quite strongly for that. So you had all these different camps coming in, and then you had other <laughs> versions as well. Those right. were just two of them. And that's what Groves was saying. Okay, guys, really, by the end of this year, by the end of 1942, let's really settle on a specific one mm-hmm. so that we can actually make a weapon that will make a difference in this war because at the rate we're going, mm-hmm. By the time we create a weapon, uh, peace will have broken out, and then we'll just feel like
2: jackasses. (laughs) Or it would be a situation where if we don't get there, someone is going to because the paranoia at that time was so very high. Right.
0: Even even, first of all, there was not really any. There was no way of knowing what was going on uh, in the Nazi camps. Mm -hmm. So it could very well be that Nazi scientists were much closer. That was a legitimate fear. But beyond that, there were already tensions between the United States and other nations, specifically the Soviet Union.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And so there was also a real fear that the Soviet Union could be investigating this as well. And so even if the weapon weren't used in World War II, it would be really important for the United States interests for there to be such a weapon, period. In fact, that's going to play a part when we get to the point of actually deploying said weapon. But mm-hmm. anyway, November 1942. Uh, there was one of the methods of isotope separation that just did not pan out, and that was using centri- uh, centrifuges. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's because the centrifuge machines were not dependable. They they would right. break down too frequently. So it wasn't that the methodology was bad. It was that the machinery itself was
2: not dependable. It was the tech issue.
0: Yeah. So, um I mean, if you remember the Stuxnet story, mm-hmm. you know, those were centrifuges that were set to spin at the wrong speed, which ended up uh, causing uh some pretty yeah. big
2: issues. It broke down. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, uh, you know, it's, it's something that we've known about for since the, the 1940s is that if you don't get the machinery to work correctly, then you, you're not going to be producing the U-235 that you need. Mm-hmm. So, uh, electromagnetic separation was the big winner so far with U-235. Gas diffusion was promising enough to still be in the running for consideration, and the Brit- the Brits were still very much behind that. Uh, plutonium, which was a completely separate line of inquiry, remember most of this was focused on uranium. Plutonium was uh, ended up getting a big boost as well. The metallurgical laboratory in Chicago. Uh, which had just recently brought Enrico Fermi on. He had been working at Columbia, and he had moved over to uh, the Metallurgical Laboratory in Chicago. They produced a small amount of pure plutonium. They had uranium piles, and plutonium was a, a byproduct of the process they were using. And so they were th- saying, well, plutonium is a better, uh, It's it's more, Apt to undergo fission than Mm -hmm. U two thirty five is. The problem is making enough plutonium for that to be effective. So it was promising, but when we're talking small amount of pure plutonium, it's microscopic. That's Mm -hmm. how small. So not useful for any sort of practical. Yeah, nothing, nothing at all, except for the fact that saying we've proven that it works. (laughs) Right, Right. proven concept. So so if we can if we can scale this up, then it could be a promising means of generating plutonium. And it was Glenn Seaborg's team. If you don't know who Seaborg is, you need to listen to the last episode. Oh, uh, it figured out how to separate the plutonium from irradiated uranium, uh, and then you had the theoretical physicists. So these are the guys who, you know, you had the the experimental ones who were actually making uh, theory, you know, putting theory to to the test. But the theoretical physicists who were led by uh, Oppenheimer were refining their calculations to figure out exactly how much fissionable material would be needed to create a working bomb. Now, the Brits had come forward and said probably between 5 to 10 kilograms. Um, after After they work with Oppenheimer and the other theorists, they said, yeah, we think that might be an underestimation. You might, yeah, you might need twice as much. <laughs> By the way, they would change this again later on, mm-hmm. and each time the goalposts were moved further out. But we need to we need, we're going to need more material based on our calculations to make a truly uh, uh, reactive system where there is a sustainable chain reaction. So Oppenheimer was recommending research into a fusion bomb, not just fission. Uh, fusion bomb would actually be triggered by initially a fission reaction. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to have fissionable material first, and then you would, the energy from that, that, uh, interaction would provide the necessary energy to f- facilitate a fusion reaction, which could be much more powerful. This would yeah. be the super bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, hydrogen bomb was one of those things that was bandied about quite a bit in these early days, but, Frankly, everyone's like, let's, let's crack fission first. Right. Finish your breakfast. Kind yeah, of exactly. But, uh, but S1, the Office of Science and Research, uh, authorized some research into light materials, deuterium being the main one, uh, to look into the possibility of a fusion bomb. So it, they didn't want to discount it or dismiss it, mm-hmm. but they also didn't want to put all the eggs in the fusion basket.
2: Right. Well, it's, you know, if you consider just from what What you outlined earlier, it's at it's complicating a process that we have yet to successfully do, you know, or complete.
0: Right. And so then Groves decides, (laughs) okay, centrifuge is out. That's not going to work. It's it'll take us too long to refine the process for it to be practical. Let's focus right now on the pile research. That's what generates plutonium the electromagnetic research, and the gaseous diffusion research, and we're going to skip the pilot plant stage, go straight to full-scale production. In other words, normally you would create a slightly larger pilot plant Mm -hmm. to make certain that the things you had tested in the laboratory still work at the plant stage. But if they don't work, then you can tweak things because the pilot plant isn't so large or so The infrastructure is not so rigid Mm -hmm. that you can't shift things around. So the idea being that you find the ideal operating conditions at the pilot plant stage. Then you scale up to full scale. They're skipping pilot plant and saying we don't have time for it,
2: which is a dangerous step to skip.
0: Yeah. Literally and figuratively. Right. (laughs) Right. Because figuratively, you could say, well, we built this facility based upon our best estimation. And it turns out that was off. And Ooh. now we're stuck with it and we have to use an unideal situation to do whatever it is we need to do. Literally, you're dealing with radioactive material. Right. <laughs> and if it gets out of control, that would be devastating. Mm-hmm. Uh, December 2nd, 1942, Enrico Fermi and his team demonstrate in front of a group of dignitaries a nuclear chain reaction, which lasted for 28 minutes until Fermi shut it down. So
2: mm-hmm.
0: that was uh this is where we get one of the most uh, famous exchanges from the Manhattan Project, and it was when uh, Compton who called Conant those names will be familiar, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, Compton called uh, Conant and they had the following exchange: uh, uh, "Who do you want to be? Do you want to be Compton or Conant?"
2: "Uh, I will. I you know what? I'll be Compton. If you're cool. I uh, go ahead. <clears throat> ring ring. <laughs> Hello." the italian navigator has landed in the new world how were the natives very friendly
0: <laughs> <And> that was <laughs> that was the way of describing not only was the the uh, experiment a success but it it impressed the dignitaries who were there to see it uh so that was that was their coded some semi-coded uh like um improvised way of of mm-hmm. saying what had happened without you know squeeing or yeah. or 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 dropping uh, information that might be you know pretty sensitive over a telephone line
2: no you did a you, you did a bang-up job with these with these notes and uh when I saw when I first saw this it made me want to go into a rabbit hole of finding all of the recorded uh, code word conversations mm-hmm. of this time because it must sound so bizarre because people are saying it with gravity but they're saying stuff like um, they're saying stuff like, the rabbit has left the hutch. Right. The rabbit has left the hutch. And then the person on the other line is like, green? And someone goes, blue. And hangs up, you know?
0: <laughs> right. And you're like, does there any record of what this actually meant? <laughs> I mean, the probably the most famous quote uh, out of all of the Manhattan Project, I would argue, comes from Oppenheimer.
2: Absolutely. And spawned so many... Um, so many things ranging from uh can out and out conspiracy theories to uh just fascinating biographies
0: yeah to to, to spoil it because I mean I'll forget by the time we get around to the part yeah, where the bomb yeah. is being tested Oppenheimer's famous quote and you've probably heard it before is I am become death the destroyer of worlds
2: yeah and he um he has a Quotation where it explains that because that's some ominous stuff. Yeah, to that's say.
0: that's like a Nick
2: Cave of the Bad Seed song. It sure, it sure is. It <laughs> it's right up there with Red Right Hand. If I were, if I were just hanging out, if you and I were hanging out, yeah. when when the bomb dropped and someone said that, they would immediately become a dangerous person. I would seriously yeah. wonder, like, well, should we have you around?
0: Yeah, for a moment, I thought you were going to say, like, if we were out and I just turned to you and said, "Hey, Jonathan, I am become death, <laughs> of the destroyer of worlds." I would take
2: that as something to really mull over and possibly start to look for the nearest exit. Especially if we were just if we were just going uh, down the street to a food truck or something. Right.
0: Yeah, we're just heading out to to talk the about, one over in the parking
2: lot. Yeah, talking yeah. about tooting your own horn, but there is a context to this, so yeah, and we can we'll, shed that I mean, light we'll, later. We'll get there a yeah. little
0: bit later. We've got more to say in this classic episode of tech stuff after these quick messages. Zumo Play. In December 28th, 1942, Mm -hmm. the U.S. government allocated half a billion dollars, which would uh, eventually grow to more than two billion dollars, 1942 dollars, to fund further development. Uh, By the way, those costs, that's just the official numbers. There Mm -hmm. could be tons and tons that are tied into it in one way or another, uh, yeah. And and not to mention funds that didn't come directly from the United States government.
2: Right, right, and that's that's a huge part of this. the 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 truth of the matter is that we probably will never know for sure. Yeah, but we do know that two billion, although it may be the sticker price, right. was not was not the the entirety of it.
0: Yeah, and in fact, when we say we may never know, no one may might know. Right, it's one <laughs> right. of those, It's it's such a huge undertaking. That it's very unlikely there's a document anywhere that has the full tally. Right. It's just it's it's just too big.
2: It's mm-hmm. too big. Yeah. So it's not it's not like a conspiracy as much as it is a tremendously difficult calculation. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I've got the uh, I've got the inflation number too. There. What's uh, that? And so we said two billion in nineteen forty two. Yes. Okay. So let's. let's I'm gonna just. Let me just do some math here. Let me get my abacus out. Yeah. $2 billion, Uh Oh, you have to use smaller values. I was on a calculator. <laughs> we have to use, it says you have to use smaller values. So just a lot of money. We'll leave it at okay. that. Okay. <laughs> uh,
0: yes, uh, a significant amount of cash. So uh, the money went on to establish full-scale gaseous diffusion plants, uh, full-scale plutonium plants, and smaller electromagnetic plants. Uh, power plants—you know, like f- manufacturing facilities—not, not like biological not, plants. Yeah,
2: yeah, that um, doesn't come along till much later. <laughs>
0: yes, uh, and Vannevar Bush said the earliest a bomb could be expected would be early 1945, and he was actually trying to be a little conservative because the earlier reports had suggested that if things worked out. There might be a, a weapon ready as early as 1944. Right. Um, yeah. but Bush was thinking, you know, I'm going to pad that out a little bit. And as it turns out, even that was optimistic. Yeah. Early 1945 was a little optimistic. Plutonium mm. was looking promising, but people were worried that the, the, uh, the radioactive pile approach, which is what Fermi was using, mm-hmm. wasn't going to be scalable. That, right. They'd be able to produce plutonium, but it would be at such small amounts that it would take way too long to have enough for it to be a weapon.
2: Especially considering that they want to build more than one because they have to test it. Yeah. And they're still not absolutely sure how much they need per weapon.
0: Right. And uh, the demonstrations Fermi had shown revealed that there could be a chain reaction, but the reaction was at too slow a rate for it to be used Mm -hmm. potentially as a weapon, Uh, the idea being that, yeah, you could do this to to generate energy like it could be a a nuclear power plant. The chain reaction would allow you to to harness in that respect, but it wouldn't be so fast to create an explosive uh, event. Mm -hmm. So it would not be useful as a weapon. Um, However, more research would go into that. Uh, Also, Fermi's approach was at such a slow rate of of energy release that they did not need any sort of cooling system. Yeah. So um, there was no need for the, the very advanced cooling systems that you will find in nuclear power plants these days, uh, which was kind of interesting to me. Mm-hmm. There were three different competing designs for uh, nuclear piles. One was water, a water cooled model, which was developed by Gail Young and Eugene Wigner. Uh, one was a liquid metal cooled approach headed by uh, our good friend Leo. Mm-hmm. Listen to the last episode. So. And the last was a helium cooled pile, which was headed by Thomas V. Moore, who was an engineer.
2: And this one was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, uh, it had a great nickname. It was called May West, um, presumably because the design included spherical segments in the outer shell of the facility. And May West was built. Yes, uh, I, yeah. I, mean, uh, I don't mean the actress. I mean I do mean the actress, but I really mean the <laughs> the actual facility named nicknamed Mae West. That was what? not its official name, by the
2: what way. scale? <laughs>
0: yeah, right. Uh, so Groves demanded that the metallurgical lab come up with a unified approach. Uh, not, not you know, he wasn't going to say, "All right, look, let's have all three of these progress at the same time." Right because he was already dealing with a branch further up, right? He was saying plutonium's just one of the legs of research they're already funding, the other two being electromagnetic and gaseous diffusion. So he didn't want plutonium research to then split into three separate groups mm-hmm. as well. That would just become unmanageable. So uh, he, the, a small facility would be headed by Fermi and shut down in 1943, so Fermi's... Uh, research could end up informing the next stage. Mm-hmm. Um They would then be able to decide if that was, in fact, the way they wanted to go. Plus, they could take all the plutonium that was made by that. That's part of the research mm-hmm. and set that aside. Uh, May West would be built and ready for operation by March 1944, and its design would allow it to produce 100 grams of plutonium per day. Which was significantly more than Fermi's approach. Yes. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: and good old Leo was allowed to continue research on liquid metal cooling systems kind of on his own.
2: Right. So, it, it, because it wasn't <laughs> as big of a priority for one right. of the
0: other things. Right. Yeah. It wasn't, it didn't look as promising to Groves. And so even though Groves was like, look, you have to settle on one, technically all three continued. <laughs> yeah. Um, Again, they didn't want to draw any conclusions too early on, and it turned out that they backed the wrong horse. Uh, Meanwhile, Glenn Seaborg's work in plutonium extraction made it possible to separate plutonium from irradiated uranium, which was an important step, because Mm. both plutonium and irradiated uranium were uh, byproducts of this pile research. And you have to separate the two if you want to get... The fissionable material necessary to create the the chain reactions. Mm-hmm. Um, so S one felt that the plutonium experiments could potentially be dangerous, uh, and so they were. They was thinking maybe we should um maybe we should start separating out some of these facilities. Like maybe we shouldn't locate the iso, the, the
2: plutonium separation right. facility with the nuclear pile facility. No, uh, let's, to go back to your basket phrase, uh, let's, why do we need to keep all our disasters in one basket? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, then, and then this also, you know, needs to be in an unpopulated area.
0: Yes. Cause if you recall from the first episode, the nuclear pile research was largely taking place in an old racket court underneath the grandstand at the University of Chicago. <laughs> um, yeah so not you know they they're, they're, the the facility or the um the department actually was saying yeah we kind of wish you had come to us before mm-hmm. you decided to use that area because this is kind of scary mm-hmm. um so they started looking around for potential partners to help build the facility and it uh there was one specifically that they looked at and they required a lot of um Oh, coercion's the wrong word, but convincing yeah. for them to take part in it. It was uh, DuPont, mm-hmm. um, and D- DuPont was not super keen on doing this. It actually did take quite a few conversations before they came on board. But they would ultimately build the facility. Um, and also in 1942, Oppenheimer suggested the location of Los Alamos, New Mexico, as one of the three sites the Manhattan Project would use to pursue the effort of building an atomic bomb. Uh, Very remote location. Oppenheimer himself owned a ranch that was neighboring Los Alamos. Yeah. So he thought of it as being remote enough for it to be uh, a useful test site and development site. Also, there were very few people who were there uh, and the ones who were there could be convinced to move by offering them a decent amount of money for their
2: their land, especially considering that the value of the land at the time. Was pretty low because, yeah. the, like, what what's out there? <laughs> well. Very
0: little. Yeah, there was a boys' school that was out
2: there, uh, but Groves went up and offered to
0: buy it from, from the, the schools, offered to buy the land, and they said, all right, we'll relocate, and they left. Um, so in 1943 in Eastern Tennessee, mm-hmm. work was well underway, uh, on several facilities. There was the plutonium plant that was designated X10. So was the electromagnetic facility, which was Y-12, and a gaseous diffusion plant, which was called K-25, uh, and this was a site that was located uh, west of Knoxville, Tennessee. It was 90 square miles, or 59,000 acres, mm-hmm. and it became a military reservation with the official name of Clinton Engineer Works. Um, by the summer of 1943, the Manhattan Project headquarters would move from Washington to this site in Tennessee. And eventually that, that uh, military site grew into a full-fledged town that today is called Oak Ridge.
2: Got a, got a little tangent for you here. What's Jonathan. that? So my, uh, my family, my extended family, is from uh, the Tri-Cities area, which is uh, in the very, very tip of uh, Tennessee, mm-hmm. up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And for a time... Uh, members of my family lived and worked around the area that would be known as Oak Ridge, and it was sort of an open secret that something was going on. But people really didn't have any any idea that um, I- any idea how big Oak Ridge would actually become to the point where I think at, at, at some point it was pow- providing like power to. A uh, uh, one seventh of the power. It was
0: actually drawing one so oh, drawing drawing the, power. drawing
2: the power. Yeah, that's one right. One seventh of
0: the power of the entire country, <laughs> not of Tennessee. Yeah, of the entire United States. One seventh of the power mm. being generated in the United States was dedicated to powering the facilities at what would become Oak Ridge. That it was never called Oak Ridge during the duration of the no. Manhattan Project. No. That would come later, but eventually it did grow into a full fledged town because mm. they. The, these projects were enormous and needed a huge variety of workers to mm-hmm. make things run. Everything from administrative staff to the people who actually operated the, the machinery and the uh, the controls,
2: mm-hmm.
0: the people who were transporting materials, the there was support staff to support all of that. It, it just it quickly grew into an a full fledged town. Yeah. Um, And so this was and a lot of people didn't know what they were working on beyond like their actual day to day jobs. They didn't know what the end goal was.
2: Right. And it's something that happens today, even in other large scale projects that it's the compartmentalization of information. Yeah. And one of the you know, it's kind of an ugly truth that gets sensationalized a lot. But I think we'll we'll explore it later on in the show. Uh, The primary reason for this at this time was the. Uh, complete, completely consuming paranoia on the part of the military of spying and espionage. Yeah. And not, you know, this wasn't some um, uh, harebrained, fantastical thing. This was a valid concern.
0: Yeah. As it turns out, it was so valid that it ended up not being paranoid enough (laughs) Um, in Washington state. We have the third of the three sites. Uh, The project set up a headquarters in Hanford. And they created another boom town, another town that was specifically meant to help push the the uh, goals of the Manhattan Project. Uh, Hanford would become home to the water cooling pile facilities and the chemical separation plants, which were called the Queen Mary's. And that only really makes sense if you see a picture of them, (laughs) because it looks almost like the the, the shape of the the stuff that's above ground Mm -hmm. looks like it's in the shape of an old uh, ocean liner. Mm -hmm. as if you had taken a Queen Mary ocean liner and buried it in the ground so only the very top is visible. That's why they were called that. Uh, So in in the spring of 1943, Oppenheimer had another lab set up in Los Alamos, New Mexico. He began to suspect that it might take three times as much material, Mm -hmm. not two times as much as they had previously estimated to make a working bomb. Uh, By the way, part of the reason why the atomic bombs ended up being so incredibly devastating is because they kept on thinking that they were going to need more, more and more work. fissionable material and it turned out that some of the earlier estimations might have been a little more on the dot than they had worried about. Mm-hmm. 1944 Both the uh, Y-12, which was that electromagnetic plant, and the K-25, that's the gaseous diffusion Mm -hmm. plant, experienced problems. Uh, They were having issues all the way from 1943 to 1944. And project scientists decided to take a look at another method of isotope separation called thermal diffusion, which had previously been under consideration, but kind of dismissed as being too slow and too poorly understood to rely upon as a reliable means of getting a weapon uh, right. Uh, yeah. Built because, you know, they they were like, well, it might pan out in the long run, but in wartime consideration, it's not practical. At this point, they started to revisit it. Uh, and with both of those facilities having issues, there was a lot of incentive to look at it again, because if the, either of the other two didn't pan out because of technical difficulties, because because of skipping that pilot plant step, they needed to have a fallback plan. So Oppenheimer suggested to Groves that they build a thermal diffusion plant at Oak Ridge and Groves agreed and co-located it with the power plant for the K25 um which the reason for that was the K the power plant would create steam
2: mm-hmm.
0: which would turn turbines that generates electricity sure. basic power plant right. design So they decide, well, that steam is really hot. We can then use that as part of the thermal diffusion process to provide the heat. Thermal meaning heat. Mm -hmm. Uh, This would be the the best way of doing it. We wouldn't have to build another facility to generate steam. We could just co-locate it with this other one. So we've got all the science about the fissionable materials, but there's a whole other section we got to
2: talk about too. Oh yeah, the actual development of the bomb itself. Oh yes, that is uh, that is going to be an important part of this story, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> so
0: so you've got you've got the science going on about how do we create this chain reaction, but mm-hmm. then you think, well, what about the actual device that's going to hold this material and initiate that chain reaction? Right. Yeah. Uh, and there were some different approaches for that too. So they started working on the ordnance aspects. That's essentially the physical manifestation of this mm-hmm. bomb, like the physical parts. They called it the gadget. <laughs> um, so th- in order to do this, uh, they, they were looking at multiple methods. One was uh, this creating two subcritical masses of fissionable material that would come together so that, you know, when they're separated Everything's kosher. You don't have to worry about it blowing up.
2: Relatively inert and and for our purposes.
0: And then bringing them together, that's what would uh, allow the very rapid fission Mm -hmm. uh, process to occur, releasing enormous amounts of energy in the process. Thus, you get the big boom. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they started looking into ways they could do this, and they had to figure out how to do it precisely at a high speed. And they had to make sure that whatever they did would not cause a pre-detonation. Because that would be bad. You don't want <laughs> right. your bomb going off before you you planned on it going mm-hmm. off. Um, so one of the things they were looking at was uh, the gun method, which was essentially firing a plug of fissionable material into a subcritical mass, turning it into critical. Yeah. Um, so think of it as it's a bomb that has within it an actual gun. There's a barrel. Uh, it's got a plug of this stuff. When the trigger is pulled, essentially, it fires that plug into the subcritical mass and then starts the the chain reaction. All this happens in a a, a second. I mean, it's, it's incredible how fast it happens.
2: But a lot of it, uh, there are some things that can go wrong. Yes, yeah.
0: Yeah. there are things that can go wrong. And one of those things is it may be that it doesn't start the reaction fast enough. So, uh, that was one of the deals. Uh, they wanted to test this theory both with, uh, U-235 and with plutonium approaches. And there was another approach that was looked at as well, not just using the, the gun, but what if you were to create an implosion? Uh, so an implosion would be to, you would create shock waves mm-hmm. that would then, uh, end up instigating this, this, uh, chain reaction. Um, and the person who started looking at implosion tests first really was Seth H. Uh And he was kind of left to his own devices to look into this. And um, he uh, ended up looking at it along with uh, uh, John von Neumann, who's a Hungarian refugee uh, who visited Los Alamos late in 1943. Uh, he was looking at Various ways to create a, a reliable bomb as well. So you've got the nuclear physicists all working on the fuel and mm-hmm. uh, fissionable material side, and then you have the other like mechanical engineers looking at well, how can we make this a practical weapon?
2: Right. Yeah.
0: Uh, so so sort of like two parallel versions of research. Uh, also. There was some friction between Nettermeyer <laughs> uh-huh. and a Navy captain named William S. Deke Parsons. He was actually in charge of ordnance. So when right. you've got a guy who's working on one of the methods, the implosion method, sure. and the guy who's in charge of it not getting along, that was an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you had to have kind of liaisons with that as well. So the, you, you did have some ego battles going on. Um, people who thought that things needed to go a certain way and other folks who felt very strongly that that was not the appropriate direction. So a lot of drama going on behind the scenes as well, Mm -hmm. not just with the technology and the science, but with personalities, which is always kind of interesting. Uh, then you had the army air force involved there. Uh, you've got like so many different departments Mm -hmm. that there's departmental issues as well. Uh, Parsons Group was developing two bomb models uh, by March 1944, and to test, he wanted to test these with B-29s. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are essentially the the methodology without the actual bomb materials right. in yeah, them. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they named them Thin Man, which was named after President Roosevelt. Uh, That used the plutonium gun design, so firing a plug of plutonium into Mm -hmm. fissionable material.
2: Highly purified plutonium. Yes.
0: And then you had Fat Man, which was named after Winston Churchill. That was an implosion prototype. So you had uh, the implosion one needed a larger form factor, thus Fat Man. Right, And then you had Thin Man. Uh, You also had a smaller uranium gadget called Little Boy, which was using a uranium gun.
2: Uh, yes, So
0: so you had the plutonium gun and the uranium gun. Uh, The plutonium gun eventually was abandoned because it turned out that plutonium-239 could pick up a neutron and become plutonium-240 and increase the chances of predetonation, which we have already established is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So they said, well, if we're going to use plutonium, we can't use the gun method. It would only really work with the implosion method. So the Thin Man variation on these bombs, that was abandoned. So you had uh, Fat Man and Little Boy v- versions, and that was it. Because otherwise uh, it was too dangerous. Mm-hmm. But um, this this also meant that the approaches were requiring the the timeline to extend a bit. They were not going to make that early 1945 deadline of a working bomb.
2: Right, and at this point in the war... The um, the tide is turning.
0: Yes. Yeah. And in fact, uh, on the Army Corps of Engineers side, you had Groves and Marshall meeting together and discussing what's happening. And their estimation was that by the time a bomb would be ready, they were being quoted that on August 1st, 1945 would be the earliest that a bomb would be available. They were pretty sure that by then Germany was going to have surrendered. Uh, The tides were turning enough where it looked like it was just Germany was on borrowed time. However, in the Pacific Theater, Japan would likely fight to the very end. The Japanese Mm -hmm. culture was such that there was very little chance of Japan's government reconciling, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: at least in a way that the West found... um, acceptable because the West was going to demand that Japan dismantle its empirical system. And that was so deeply ingrained in Japanese culture. It was unlikely to happen uh, until just catastrophic losses were, were experienced on Japan's side.
2: Also the economies of, well, the economies of all, all the countries involved at some point uh, shifted greatly as they do during times of war. But the Japanese economy at the time, was a war-powered economy, like yeah. it, it, it was necessary to keep the, the cycle going.
0: Yeah, so pretty grim, yeah. uh, And but it became more and more apparent to the Army Corps of Engineers that, in fact, if they were able to produce a working bomb, the target was not going to be Germany. It was mm-hmm. going to be Japan. They mm-hmm. They knew this in early 1945, they were pretty sure um by n- mid 1944 expenditures were around 100 million dollars per month and in late 1944 and early 1945 progress at oak ridge meant that the august 1st deadline actually started to look realistic it didn't you know at first they were they were worried that even august 1st might be too aggressive but the early problems that had been plaguing the facilities had largely been worked out and now all the different lines of research were starting to be fruitful. So at this point, they weren't even saying which version is going to work. They were they were pretty sure there was going to be at least two. The plutonium implosion bomb looked like it was very promising. And the uranium gadget bomb, the the gun method, looked like it was very promising. So... Uh, then they started looking into how they were going to, to actually build these. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Hanford, up in Washington, their plutonium facilities had some problems early. There was an issue with what was called xenon poisoning.
2: Which was not for the employees. No. They weren't this, dying of xenon. This was <laughs> the, this
0: was the nuclear fuel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the xenon, um, the process was producing xenon. And the problem was that the, the way the chain reaction works, if you remember from our, our previous episode, uh, these radioactive elements, when they decay, give off fast-moving neutrons, mm-hmm. which can then trigger another uh, another particle to f- to undergo fission, mm-hmm. and thus it ends up reducing fast-moving neutrons. And as long as it's, redu- it's as long as it's producing more than one of those fast-moving neutrons. This becomes a, a, an expanding chain reaction. Right. right? Yeah. It's like, you know, you tell two friends and they tell two <laughs> friends and they tell, that sort of thing. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so the problem was that xenon, which was being produced by this, uh, this, uh, process could accept neutrons so readily that it would end up preventing a chain reaction from happening. Essentially, he's like, come on over here, boys. We're good. And then, Because the neutrons were being accepted by xenon, they were not triggering further fission. Mm -hmm. And so uh, once they figured that out, they were able to take advantage of something DuPont had absolutely insisted upon when it agreed to build the facilities. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had designed the facility to allow for operation at greater power levels, which originally the scientists were saying... We don't, or actually it's really the Army Corps of Engineers saying, we don't want this. It's too expensive. It's it's not necessary. We've been told that it should work at these lower power levels. And DuPont said, no, we're gonna re- have to insist. <laughs> and as it turns out, that was the right decision. Yep. Stay tuned for the exciting conclusion of this Tech Stuff Classic episode right after we take this break. Working remotely.
3: Zumo Play.
0: So by operating at the greater power levels that overwhelmed the xenon, so in other words, it was generating neutrons at a rate so fast that the xenon was not going to be able to accept them at the rate Mm -hmm. they were coming out. So it was allowing that chain reaction to occur after all. So the Hanford facility began producing plutonium in significant amounts and sent the first shipment to Los Alamos in February 1945. So... The plutonium gun method of bomb design did not work. The only way the plutonium was going to be useful is if they could prove the implosion method Mm -hmm. would work. So that's where the focus shifted at that point. They knew the gun design was a bust. So they started looking significantly into implosion. So by late 1944, they were pretty sure that the uranium gun method was viable. So that was going to be the little boy version of the, the bomb. Uh, They froze that design, meaning they said, all right, this is definitely what we are going to build. They froze it in February 1945. Plutonium, uh, their work with that was obviously taking a little longer. They knew the gun design wasn't going to work. But once they figured out the implosion design, that got approved in March, and they scheduled a test for the 4th of July. <laughs> Biggest fireworks you'd ever right. see.
2: Right. Yes.
0: However, they actually moved it back to July 16th, uh, because of weather, actually. And they named it the Trinity Test. And it happened at 5.30 in the morning. So, interesting thing. They, the uranium gun method was so certain, they didn't test it. They they never, they never, they never tested the bomb before they used it. But the plutonium method, they weren't sure. Mm -hmm. So they built this plutonium bomb, the implosion-based bomb. At five thirty in the morning on July sixteenth, they fire it. Uh, they used a firing tower to hold the bomb, and to uh, to kind of approximate where the bomb would be before it detonated. Because right, the bombs yeah. detonate before they hit the ground.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's not like there's a a, a tip on the yeah. bomb that hits the the ground. They're they're programmed to get to a certain elevation, right. built to get to a certain elevation, and then explode above ground because yes. it maximizes the damage.
0: Yeah. This is where this, by the way, is also where our conversation is going to get pretty heavy. Yeah. Because we're now talking about actual physical damage and the loss of human life. So uh, while we were you know, maybe a little cavalier, I don't know even if cavalier is the right word, but we were playful at mm-hmm. points. This is where this show is really going to get serious because We're talking about real human beings. So this test was phenomenally impressive and successful from a weaponization point of view. It vaporized the firing tower. Mm -hmm. It turned asphalt into sand, and it turned sand into glass. Uh, The explosion knocked over a 200-ton steel container that was a half mile from ground zero. The steel container had been built and designed and uh, put down as part of the test, but they didn't intend to actually use it on the July 16th test. <laughs> right. yeah. It was literally just standing where they had left
2: it. <laughs> a half mile away.
0: And it knocked it over. Right. Um, the explosion was bright enough to cause temporary blindness in observers, even those who were wearing goggles with smoked glass lenses. Uh, They knew it was going to be bright. They had no idea how bright it was going to be. And some of them lost their vision for a while. Mm -hmm. Glass would shatter in houses 125 miles from the explosion point. And it was equivalent to 15,000 to 20,000 tons of TNT. They had estimated it would be about equivalent to 5,000
2: tons. And this goes back to the earlier statements with, this is also, by the way, the, the day that Oppenheimer creeps out everyone. Yeah. But, uh, and, and the, um. Yes. Where this, we say, whoops. Instead of whoops, he says, I am death. death destroyer of worlds. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, just, just briefly on that, the, um, the reason that he said that, and there's a great quotation from him here. Says, we knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed. A few people cried. Most people were silent. I remember the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and, and to impress him takes on his multi armed form and says, now I'm become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if they did, but this, uh, yeah, in this, in this day, um, You know, you have to think about how how you would feel 125 miles away. Yeah, this thing blows up, and the I don't know, blame is the right word, but because they kept upping the amount they thought they needed. Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, and those people who witnessed the detonation and participated in it were very lucky to survive.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, and and you think about this, like you know, they didn't have a full understanding of what the long-term effects were going to be of this. Not just, you know, the initial effects are devastating enough, but the long-term effects uh, continue to end up, you know, causing damage and killing years after the initial explosion. We'll get into some figures yeah. in a little bit. So uh, I think this is also one of those points where there's that moment of realization that the thing you've been working so hard, the thing that previously had just been theory, that you had based it upon observations of the energy that was released in these nuclear reactions something that you knew was possible but had not actually seen for yourself now is reality it is no longer abstract thought it is no longer the the realm of calculations on a sheet of paper now it's real and that's got to be A heavy, heavy moment.
2: Especially considering what this is.
0: Yeah, especially when you consider what the the intended purpose is. On April 12, 1945, President Roosevelt dies, and Vice President Harry S. Truman is sworn in as president. Here's how secret the Manhattan Project was. Despite the fact that it employed around 130,000 people at one time or another... (laughs) Truman didn't know about it.
2: They also detonated a nuclear weapon. Yeah. And the vice president didn't know about it. He didn't know about it. No, at this point in April, that, they hadn't he, quite, they hadn't oh, detonated it That's right. Yeah, it's July. So, yeah. but in April,
0: they hadn't happened yet. But Truman, they were well on their way to the test. Mm-hmm. Truman had no idea. He was briefed on it as part of becoming president uh, during war, which is, you know, a pretty Tough gig, no matter how you look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Truman understood the relevance of the project, and he supported it. Uh, you know, plus it's pretty late in the game. <laughs> they were yeah. they had built the thing pretty much. They just needed to test it at that point. Um, so on the political side, Germany had surrendered, uh, and it was clear that Japan was going to lose the conflict, but was probably going to fight until the very end. So it was going to require a massive invasion of Japan using you know a coordinated effort with the allied forces in order to to make it happen no telling how many people would die on both sides of that uh and it was going to be it was going to to extend the war even further and so there was a very serious discussion about what do we do do we go forward with invasion plans or do we actually use this weapon we have des- we have designed now the us informed churchill of the success of the the test yeah and Churchill was all for it.
2: Until he found out it was nicknamed Fat Boy. <laughs>
0: yeah, fat, fat Man, yeah. <laughs> fat Man, sorry. Yeah, Fat boy, Man then. named after him. Yeah, no, Uh, uh. yeah, he, I don't know if he ever, I don't know when he got the memo on that part, <laughs> but he was totally on board. Truman right. told Stalin, uh, he had been told by his his advisors, hey, don't tell Stalin. Stalin's kind of a bad guy. You don't mm-hmm. want to, you don't mm-hmm. want to let him know about this ahead of time. But Truman felt that it was necessary to preserve the uneasy peace between the United States and the Soviet Union. Right. So he told Stalin of the development of the weapon and told told Stalin without the presence of an interpreter. It's just Truman and Stalin. And Stalin was very composed. And it turns out the reason he was composed was because he already knew about it. Um, He already knew about it because despite the paranoia. Yep. There was a Soviet spy uh, amongst the Brits who were working alongside the Americans on the Manhattan Project. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So, um, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about him in a second. But the U.S. wanted unconditional surrender of Japan, the dismantling of the imperial system. And Japan wanted to surrender based on intercepted messages between Tokyo and Moscow. but. Not under the conditions that the Americans were demanding.
2: Right, Japan, I believe, still wanted to maintain some of the territory yeah, that and, it acquired,
0: and they didn't want to abandon the empire right. approach of their government. Like yeah. that was that was a big deal, and and United States was like, no, your empire, the imperial method has to go. Yeah, it can We want democracy. Uh, we want a different system of government the rather than what be you've been disbanded.
2: using. Disbanded. Yeah. yeah, so.
0: It was, I mean, it was a tall order and Japan was not, like the Japanese government was not in a position that could easily capitulate to those demands.
2: Right, right.
0: So things are moving ahead. And on August 6th, 1945, the Enola Gay, a B-29 bomber piloted by Colonel Paul Tibbets, released a 9,700 pound uranium gun bomb called Little Boy. This, remember, this is the one that had never been tested. They right. knew they were confident it would work, but they had never actually tested this bomb. And it was released at approximately 8.15 a.m., 31,000 feet above Hiroshima, Japan, and 43 seconds later, it detonated. At that point, it was uh, at an altitude of 1,900 feet above the city, and the initial explosion killed 70,000 people.
2: More or less instantly.
0: Yeah. Uh, we're, this is where you hear about people's shadows being burned into the walls behind them because of the intense energy that was released by this bomb. By 1950, the death count would be closer to 200,000. So that 70,000 those that was initial, where again, instantaneous, not even a moment to think. It's just over. But another 130,000 would die due to radiation sickness. So uh, an agonizing fate for so many. Nearly all the buildings in a five-square-mile radius were either leveled completely or just severely damaged to the point where there was no chance of, of using them again. Mm-hmm. They would need to be taken down. Truman announced the Hiroshima raid that evening to the American public, which was the first time that the United States revealed to the general public that Mm -hmm. they had been working on uh, an atomic weapon. Uh, This was the first time the Manhattan project had been unveiled in a sense that it existed, right? They didn't go into any details about how much work had gone into it or what had happened, but that this was the first time. So again, 130,000 people had worked on it. Many of those people, this was the first time they found out what their work was, what the result was. Mm -hmm. Like they didn't know necessarily there were very few of that hundred thirty thousand who actually knew what the purpose of the Manhattan Project really was, which is phenomenal. It's hard in in hindsight. It's hard for us to imagine that. I'm sure at the time, it was a job. You know, you were working on sure. science.
2: Yeah, and and the uh, and communication worked differently because yes. this was not pre internet. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So, um, the United States and in the wake of this calls for Japan's surrender, according to the earlier terms. Japan did not immediately respond, which then led to the August 9th bombing of Nagasaki. Uh, This was the plutonium implosion method. This was the one that they had tested previously. This was called Fat Man, and it was carried by a plane named uh, Boxcar. B-O-C-K, not Mm B-O-X. And Nagasaki was actually the secondary target. Uh, The primary target was the Kokura Arsenal, which would have been more of a military target than Nagasaki was. But weather prevented the pilot uh, Charles Sweeney from flying over it. Uh, He felt that there was too low of a chance that he would be able to drop the bomb on the intended target. So he swapped out to his secondary target, which was Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. It was dropped at an altitude of 29,000 feet, and detonated 1,650 feet above Nagasaki at 11.01 a.m., and exploded with a force of 21,000 tons of TNT. Now, it killed 40,000 people and injured another 60,000 on that initial explosion, and the eventual death toll was calculated at around 140,000, largely because Nagasaki did not have the same population density as Hiroshima. It wasn't that it wasn't that this was a less devastating bomb. It was that it due to the geography, it, it affected fewer people.
2: So in the space of, uh, just a few days, yeah, Japan lost 340,000 lives.
0: Uh, ultimately would lose 340,000. Yeah. Right. yeah uh, after the... the initial would be closer to 110,000.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, in, in two bombings, mm-hmm. uh, devastating, absolutely devastating. Um, The Manhattan Project itself would continue because while it had built these bombs specifically for the purpose of bringing World War II to an end, uh, the research was going to continue on and it would end officially in 1947 and hand over the research into atomic weaponry to a new group, the Atomic Energy Commission which we talked about extensively when we covered Area 51. Mm -hmm. Uh, Atomic Energy Commission was important during the the establishment of Area 51. So I mentioned that there had been a spy Mm -hmm. who reported to the Soviet Union. That would be uh, Klaus Fuchs, who was part of the British contingent of scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project. It was not discovered until 1949 that he was actually a Soviet agent. So throughout the entirety of the Manhattan Project, all the way to the point where it was over, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: he was feeding information to the Soviet Union. He was caught and convicted of espionage and was eventually released in 1959. He then moved to what was then East Germany. Mm -hmm. Kids, if you don't know that there was an East Germany, there was for a while. Uh, You need to look that up. Uh, He was eventually... Uh, he eventually rather provided information that helped China develop its first atomic bomb.
2: Right. Yeah. So you may have heard stories recently um, or in the past few years about uh, a scientist named A.Q. Khan, continually uh, linked to uh, other countries acquiring nuclear weaponry or knowledge of uh, the atomic process. Uh, this is um, Klaus Fuchs is like the original version of that and did quite a bit to propagate this technology. Also, um, the Manhattan project on balance is fairly lucky that he's the kind of spy. He was Mm -hmm. a spy sent to feed information rather than to stymie. Right. The, the progress. So he made a contribution. The, the goal of ending world war two was shared obviously
0: by both Stalin and, uh, the United States, Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, Stalin also had a very strong interest in gaining that information for beha- on behalf of Soviet Union so that the United States would not have the upper hand for very long in what would then become the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, another important person that we didn't really mention, I mean, there's so many, there are mm-hmm. tons, there's They're there's a just lot. a yeah. the, the list of names connected to the Manhattan Project is incredibly long, 130,000, as it turns out. Um, But another important person on the physics side was Edward Teller, a theoretical physicist. He was the one who was really pushing for the development of the hydrogen bomb. In fact, he has been referred to as the father of the hydrogen bomb, a name he did not like.
2: Um,
0: (laughs) They called it the super bomb during the Manhattan Project, and eventually it would be developed. Uh, Not really, not used, (laughs) but, but developed and tested. So... That is the story of the Manhattan Project from the beginning all the way to the development and deployment mm-hmm. of the ato- two atomic bombs that were dropped on Japan.
2: Yeah, and we touched on a lot of things that uh, are stories in themselves, the USSR's program. I think Stalin learned of the U.S. program or the U.S. intentions in yeah. 1940. Which, uh, and then there's this. there's this story that I think you mentioned in part one, about what happens to um, the scientists who are held consensually or not right. in the German program, yeah. and uh, you know Operation Paperclip. But you get yeah. more rocketry. Yeah, that's yeah. more rocketry on the U.S. side. But uh, the USSR forcibly abducted some scientists mm-hmm. from the German program. Yeah. Very strange time.
0: There's there's tons of stuff we could talk about. Yeah. And in fact, I'm sure stuff they don't want you to know has covered quite a bit of this hey, material too. We've touched on oh, one or two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I I highly recommend you go check out that show, just in general, but especially if you want to learn more about you know the tactics that were employed. This was uh, I mean, there are no games higher stakes than this, right? This right. is this is incredibly grim stuff when you boil it down to what's actually the end goal and what is happening and as a result uh there are nations and people who will you know there's no there's no limit to what they will you know the the tactics they will employ yeah, absolutely. to achieve the goal because the goal the stakes are so high and uh it, sometimes that leads to stories of heroism which is amazing mm-hmm. sometimes it leads to stories of ooh, that is dirty underhanded stuff you know that uprooting people, whether they are, quote unquote, on the wrong side or not, and then forcing them to work on your behalf. Yeah. Now, in some cases, there were people who were more than willing to do that because to Absolutely. them, the, the
2: science was what was important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were. The, that was their ultimate moral compass. Was yeah. Can I work on the science?
0: Yeah. And it wasn't so much who who is the person like like I'm not the one who decides who this gets used on. I'm the one who figures out whether or not it works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just it's an odd story and there's so many of them. But on all
2: sides. Uh, could, so could I ask you, um yeah. and, and tell me if this is too tell me if this is too um, much of a heavier speculative thing. What's that? Do you think the world is a better place with this technology? Uh, oh hoo, boy. It's a rough one. I quarrel with it myself sometimes. I, I
0: think I think uh, nuclear power certainly has some very important applications, uh, some of which are incredibly beneficial to humanity, even with the problematic nuclear fuel and nuclear waste issues.
2: Sure.
0: Um, so on that side, I th- I think that it was incredibly important and beneficial. From a weaponry side, I think it just caused enormous amounts of Harm mm-hmm. uh, beyond the obvious of the the people who lost their lives as a result of the bombs being dropped. There are stories of people who who uh, may have developed cancer just from working on the projects.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: Whether or not that's actually the the cause, it's impossible to say because there are just too many vectors to take into account. Sure. But it seems like it's a likely source, at least for some of the cases, if not many of them. Um I mean the Cold War was awful. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean it led to the space race which was awesome mm-hmm. and a lot of uh a lot of the world changing or civilization changing mm-hmm. technology that we have today comes from times of conflict.
0: Yeah, it's true. I mean we would not be where we are today without that conflict, but I don't necessarily think that that's put us in a great place. I mean mm-hmm. there's certainly there are current conflicts in the world, Mm -hmm. cold and otherwise, that uh, the presence of nuclear weapons have made far more complex and higher stakes than would otherwise exist. And uh, I'm not a big fan of that. So, I mean... And ultimately, I do believe that the Allied powers would have won World War II without the use of atomic weapons. Uh, next
2: question. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you no, know, it would have happened. Yeah. The question is, how long would it have taken and how much more would Japan have... Would Japan have suffered more uh-huh. due to uh, the nature the, yeah. of, of the war than it did from the bombs? That's a question that's impossible to answer because there's no way of knowing how it would have turned sure. out otherwise. Yeah. Um. And ultimately, you start to wonder if perhaps the bombing of Japan was not only to force Japan to capitulate to the United States demands and the allied demands Mm -hmm. of surrender, but also perhaps a demonstration of the United States' superiority and weaponry to say, hey, everybody in the world, pay attention because this is what we can do now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would like to think that that was if a part of. The smallest of parts, but something deep inside me worries about that. And that wraps up part two of our discussion about the Manhattan Project, Tech Stuff Takes Manhattan. Uh, Thanks to Ben Boland for joining the show way back in 2015. You're a real mensch, or at least you were seven years ago. I'm sure you still are. I mean, we're arch nemeses now because I'm, I'm his alter ego villain character quizster on ridiculous history so uh yeah uh i have to have him back on the show so that he can get his licks in since i'm always on his shows giving him grief if you have suggestions for topics we should cover in future episodes of tech stuff please reach out the best way to do that is on twitter the handle for the show is tech stuff hsw and i'll talk to you again really soon